How's everybody doing? Good, good, good. Um, hope everyone had a good uh, Christmas, good holiday, right? I remember in a conversation with someone, <laughs> I was in college, and uh, I remember there was, a, there was a young lady who said it was offensive to say Merry Christmas, so she said, Happy Holidays. And I asked her, I said, do you know what the origin of the word holiday is? And she said, no, and I said, it means holy day. So uh, anyway, so um, there was another story where the same young lady uh, someone sneezed in an English class, and I said, God bless you, and she said, that's offensive. Why don't you say something like Gesundheit? And I said, well, do you know what Gesundheit means? And she said, no, and I said, it's German for God bless you. So um, uh, <laughs> welcome to higher learning, right? So um, anyways, uh, I'm not going to take too much of your time. That's, that's, you know, I know you guys look forward to my funny anecdotes every weekend, but for, for brevity's sake, I have to keep it keep it kind of tight. We have a lot of ground to cover today. We're in chapter 8 of Daniel. We're going to do the entire chapter. Um, and so it's, it's a chapter on history. It's got a lot of information. There's a lot for me to read, so I'm not going to waste a lot of time. Something I do want to say, though, is my wonderful mother and my wonderful aunt are sitting over here to my right. And so before you leave today, you got to go give them hugs because they're huggers. And then they have to go back to St. Louis. So they need lots of hugs before you guys leave. So they're wonderful women. They're the two, uh, besides my wife and my girls, the two closest women I have in my entire life. So I'm in chapter eight. I'm going to pray and get into this. Uh, if you weren't here a couple of weeks ago, we did our Advent last week. And then the week before that, we wrapped up chapter seven. Now, if you've never been with us, the book of Daniel is written by a guy, oddly enough, named Daniel, who is a prophet. And he received multiple visions from God and he had interpreted visions that other people had had. At the point of the story that we're in, in chapter 8, he's probably somewhere in his mid to late 80s, and he had received a vision back when Babylon was still in power, and he's just now writing it down. Now, the vision he received in chapter 7 was about the end of the world, the Antichrist, all the stuff that's going to happen in future times. It hasn't happened yet, but from the remnants of the Roman Empire, this leader's going to rise up, and he's going to be the final, uh, final leader before Christ comes back. This week, we're going to get into a history lesson, okay? And what we're going to talk about this week is that the historical parts of the Word of God, the Bible, help us understand the relevance of the past, why it's important to know history. And if we understand that, we understand the weight or the magnitude of the present, the here and now, and then we understand the hope of the future, okay? So our history is important, our present is important, and then having our future in perspective is also important. It's odd that this falls right now. It's our last service before New Year's. So we're going to get into what the future looks like a little bit. Let me pray. We'll jump into this. I'm going to do my best, my, my, best, my best not to bore you guys, and I'm going to run through this history lesson, and, and hopefully you'll, you'll dig this, okay? Let me pray, and we'll get into chapter 8 of uh, Daniel. You should have got a notes handout when you walked in has pretty much everything I'm going to say in it. So if you nod off or fall asleep, you can go back and just read it later. It's all good. So let me pray. Lord Jesus, God, we love you. I just want to thank you so much, Lord, for everything you've done for us, Lord. I want to thank you so much, God, for uh, the great Christmas my wife and I got to have and, and for all the people uh, in this church who've become my family, Lord, and just getting to spend time with them, God. Lord, I pray that you open up our eyes and ears today. Help us to understand the importance of the history in the Bible and, the, and, and what, the, what the Word is going to teach us today. Father, we pray for every single church in our city. 
the bigger churches, the smaller churches, God, everything in between, that you bless the pastors, Lord, that you bless the congregations and that you help your kingdom to advance through those churches. And Lord, I just, uh, just pray that you bless our time together. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we lift you up, God, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, we're in chapter 8 of Daniel. Daniel is after the book of Ezekiel. Chapter 8 is after chapter 7. Here we go. In the third year of King Belshazzar's reign, a vision appeared to me, Daniel, after the one that had appeared to me earlier. I saw the vision, and as I watched, I was in the fortress city of Susa in the province of Elam. I saw in the vision that I was beside the Ulai Canal. I looked up, and there was a ram standing beside the canal. He had two horns. The two horns were long, but one was longer than the other. The longer one came up last or second. I saw the ram charging to the west, the north, and to the south. No animal could stand against him, and there was no rescue from his power. He did whatever he wanted, and he became great. Okay, so if you were with us a couple of weeks ago, in the first year of King Belshazzar's reign, Belshazzar was the last leader of the Babylonian Empire before it fell. And Daniel was way up. He was actually retired, came out of retirement briefly, and was one of the most powerful people in Babylon. In the third year of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel had his second vision. He had another vision given to him from God. Now, something we talked about earlier in Daniel is the book of Daniel is written in two languages, Aramaic and Hebrew. The reason why it's written in two languages is the parts written in Aramaic spoke to the entire world, or all who would read it, right? It was kind of a universal language. And then the Hebrew was written specifically to the Jews. It related more to the Jews. This chapter is one of those chapters. It's written in Hebrew, and it's, it's relating more to the Jews. This chapter is also repetitious. If you've read chapter 2, if you've read chapter 7 that we covered just a couple of weeks ago, it's a lot of the same material, but that's not a mistake. It's not because the Bible is poorly written. All good teaching material and all good teachers use repetition. And so God and the Bible are no different. It uses repetition to make sure that certain points are learned. Now, most of this chapter is going to focus on a transition. When it was written or when the vision was given, the Babylonian empire was in power. But what it's going to focus on is the shift from the, Greek, or from the Persian empire that came and conquered the Babylonians. It's going to focus on the shift between the Persians to the Greeks, okay? Just a couple of different empires that have come, and it's going to focus on that shift. And because it focuses on the shift from the Persians to the Greeks, in this vision that Daniel's having, he's kind of transported spiritually in his mind's eye to the city in Persia called Susa. It's in the province of Elam. Just for reference, that would be in modern-day Iran. We talk a lot about Iran these days, and this would have took place in what is modern-day Iran. Now, this would have been about 250 miles from where Babylon was, which is in modern-day Iraq, okay? So this would have been pretty close, pretty close proximity to where Daniel was, okay? So the reason why Daniel got these visions is because God wanted him to know that he was in control. If you haven't been with us, the whole book of Daniel can be summed up in the thesis statement that God is sovereign. He's in control. Nothing happens outside of God's sphere. Nothing surprises God. 
whenever something happens, God isn't like, no, he knew. He knew that was going to happen, and nothing happens outside of that. He also wanted Daniel to know the flow of history, future history, and then he wanted Daniel to know that eventually the Jews will be led back to Israel, and this is how it's going to happen, okay? It's going to kind of unfold. So the first thing we see, and these are, there's a lot of symbolism in chapter 8, and none of it's extremely difficult. I'll do my best to explain it, but it's not extremely hard to understand. The first thing he saw was a ram with two horns, and the ram symbolizes the Persians, just like if you go back to Daniel chapter 2, there's a statue that this guy Nebuchadnezzar has a dream about, and each part of the statue represents a different empire. The Babylonian empire was the head, the chest and the arms were the Persian empire. So the ram is the same thing as the chest and the arms from chapter 2. It's also the same thing as the bear in chapter 7. So the empire of Persia was was, uh, metaphorically talked about as a bear in chapter 7, okay? And the two horns coming off this ram symbolized the Medes and the Persians, two different leaders, okay? Because it was a divided nation. So the horns were different sizes because the Medes first ruled the empire, And then later on, the Persians came and became more the leaders of the Medo-Persian Empire, or we just know it now as the Persian Empire, okay? Pretty simple stuff. So this ram charged in three directions. The reason why this is mentioned to Daniel by God in this vision is it was showing Daniel what parts of the world the Persians were going to conquer. They conquered Asia Minor. They conquered Lydia in Palestine, which is in modern-day Israel. They conquered parts of Africa, And so all these things came to fruition and came to pass in the directions that he said. And it said that no animal could stand against it, which means for the allotted time that God permitted, no one could topple Persia until, as we see here in a second, the next empire comes along. But it was unstoppable. And what's interesting is we're still seeing the effects of the power of the Persian Empire in Iran right now. Iran is very wealthy. There's a lot of talk of Iran, unless you've had your head in the sand. There's a lot of talk that you've probably heard about Iran, okay? So, the first one is this ram, and that's symbolized by the Persians, okay? Now we're going to see this goat that symbolizes the next empire. Here we go. As I was observing, a male goat appeared coming from the west across the surface of the entire earth without touching the ground. The goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. He came towards the two-horned ram I had seen standing beside the canal and rushed at him with savage fury. I saw him approaching the ram, and infuriated with him, he struck the ram, shattering his two horns, and the ram was not strong enough to stand against him. The goat threw him to the ground and trampled him, and there was no one to rescue the ram From the goat's power. Then the male goat became very great, but when he became powerful, the large horn was shattered. I'm sorry I couldn't find a goat with one horn on Google. They just didn't have one. But four conspicuous horns came up in its place, pointing towards the four winds of heaven. So now, in this vision, okay, just imagine you're getting this vision. Daniel's awake. I use the example from Star Trek of, of a holodeck, right? He sees all these things going on. He can interact with them, but, but it's not real. And so he sees this ram, 
and out of the corner of his eye, he sees a goat moving so swiftly that it looks like its feet are not touching the ground. It's not literally gliding, it's just moving so quickly that it looks like its feet aren't even touching the ground. Now, this goat represents the Greek empire. If you go back to Daniel chapter 2, it's the third empire, the bronze torso of the statue. That's what it represents. And if you go to chapter 7, it's represented by a leopard. If you know anything about leopards, they're swift. They're not the most powerful animal, but they're very, very fast, very, very cunning. And so this symbolizes an empire that isn't known for brute force, but it's known for its agility. So it doesn't conquer because it has bigger armies and stronger men. It conquers through strategy. And we know by researching the Greek empire, that's how they won. In fact, their armies were only about a tenth of the size of the Persians. So something that's neat is we notice in in Daniel chapter 7, these empires were, were kind of related to wild animals. You have a bear, you have a leopard, you have a a lion. These are wild animals. In chapter 8, they're talked about to be more domesticated. This is kind of a fun fact. The reason why there's a shift is chapter 7 is talking about the world at large, right? And these empires versus each other were savage. But their relationship to the Jews was actually not that bad. In fact, Alexander the Great, who led led the, the Greek empire, actually had a lot of sympathy for the Jews and worshiped with the Jews in Palestine. We'll get to that here in a second. And then Cyrus, who led the Persians, was not necessarily sympathetic to the Jews, but he was instrumental in eventually them getting back to their homeland. So it was a different kind of relationship between the Jews and these empires and the rest of the world and these empires. So what happened is, is the goat attacks the ram. He's moving extremely swiftly, and the goat, the Greek empire, rushed at the, at, the, at the ram, and it says, with savage fury, shattered the two horns, shattered this empire. Now, what's interesting, again, is if you go back in history, Alexander the Great was known for creating a new kind of warfare. The Persians had a very kind of old-fashioned, old-style way of engaging in war, and the Greeks did not. They were very, very smart, very, very tactful. And so again, they toppled armies 10 times bigger than what they were. So what we see in this chapter, guys, and the reason why chapter 8 is so important is we see that prophecy, which is foretelling of the future, becomes history. And that gives validity, that gives substance to the Bible. And there's a guy named Flavius Josephus. He was a a Roman Jewish historian. He didn't write any of the Bible, but he, he added commentary to the Bible and history to the Bible that gave it substance. And he claimed that Alexander the Great passed through Palestine and that the Jews in the, the, in the modern day Israel, the Jews showed Alexander the Great, the book of Daniel, 200 or so years after Daniel died, they showed Alexander the Great this book of the Bible, and he read it, and he goes, oh, that's me. Isn't that crazy? 200 years before it had happened, Alexander had came in and conquered, just like Daniel said, Alexander the Great sees it and goes, oh my gosh, wow, he knew I was going to do this. Now look, if you're in here and you are not a believer of the Bible, this starts to show that there must be something up with this book, that there is a supernatural element that is present in the authorship of this book. Either that or Daniel was just a really good guesser, right? So what we also see is this, is that eventually all empires are shattered. 
Remember that the horns in Daniel represent leaders of empires, and history validates Daniel. When you go back and see the predictions, everything he said came to fruition, and all those empires fell just like he said they would. And the Greek empire fell, uh, fell as well. In the 13th year of Alex's reign, that's Alexander the Great, whenever we talk about someone a lot, we just get comfortable and abbreviate their names. Alex's reign, he suddenly died at age 33. Do you know he was that young? I'm 36. So Alexander the Great had conquered the world by the time he was like in his 20s, right? And here I am at 36. But anyways, so after 13 years of his reign, after 13 years, at age 33, he died suddenly. And from that, four leaders came up from him, just like Daniel said. Four generals rise up and they divide the Greek empire. So again, what we see and why the Bible has history in it and why it's so important is it gives validity to the word. Now look, if there are any skeptics in the room, if there is anyone in the room that does not believe in the Holy Bible or has questions, that's totally okay. It's not a sin to be skeptical. In fact, one of Jesus' closest disciples was a guy that was extremely skeptical, a guy named Thomas. But what we see, and because of books like Daniel and because of chapters like this, the Bible has been proven to be the most historically and archaeologically sound book of antiquity ever written. There's no book from ancient times that has as much archaeological proof and historical backing as the Holy Bible. It doesn't exist. And so what that says to the skeptic is, wow, something must be up with this. I don't recommend a lot of you watch this unless you're very firm in your faith. There's a documentary called The Unbelievers on Netflix. Uh, a guy named Lawrence Krauss, he's a physicist and a really happy feller, uh, fellow named Richard Dawkins, um, who is a, uh, uh, he's an evolutionary biologist. Yeah, he's a happy guy, he loves people. But these two go on this speaking tour and they're hardcore atheists. And they just really, really rail against uh, Christians and, and Muslims and Jews and very, very hateful people. But when I read a book like chapter 8 of Daniel, there must be something to it. There must be something more to this. So I believe, believe if one objectively breaks open the Holy Bible, if one objectively reads the Scripture, most people that do not believe in the Bible have never read the Bible. And so if one objectively picks this thing up and reads it from cover to cover, and if they are vulnerable enough to let the Holy Spirit guide them, one will see that this word is congruent. This word does not contradict itself. And if you think it does, I can show you with a little bit of research and study that it does not. It is congruent, it is wise, it is applicable, and it is supernatural. And so if people ask me, Corey, why are you a Christian? I have a lot of reasons why I'm a Christian. But one of the biggest reasons I'm a Christian and believe in this book so much is the principles of the book work. They work economically, they work relationally, they work politically, they work on every single level. The problem is not the book, the problem is, is we don't apply it. That's the problem. Let's take sex, for instance, because we like talking about that in church. <laughs> if we applied the biblical parameters of sex to our culture, we would not have sexually transmitted diseases in two generations, just two. So STDs would be something of the past. We wouldn't even talk about those. So the problem is that we do not apply the sexual parameters of the Bible to our culture. If we did STDs, the breakdown of the nuclear family, the, the, the insecurities and the doubts and the depression that come from our sexual behaviors, 
would be completely eradicated. So the Bible knows what it's talking about. We just have a very poor job of following it. If we followed its economic structure, we wouldn't be in the hole that we're in right now as a nation and as individuals if we, if we followed went back to the book of Proverbs and read what it looks like to handle our finances. I'll move on. I'm digressing. Next part. From one of them, a little horn emerged and grew extensively toward the south, and it grew towards the east and towards the beautiful land. It grew as high as the heavenly host and made some of the stars and some of the host fall to the earth, and he trampled them. It made itself great, even up to the prince of the host, and it removed his daily sacrifice and overthrew the place of his sanctuary. Because of rebellion, a host, together with the daily sacrifice, will be given over. The horn will throw truth to the ground and will be successful in whatever it does. Then I heard a holy one speaking, and another holy one said to the speaker, how long will the events of this vision last, the daily sacrifice, the rebellion that makes desolate, and the giving over of the sanctuary and the host to be trampled? He said to me, for 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary will be restored, okay? So what's going to happen? In chapter 7 of Daniel, it talks about the little horn, which is the Antichrist, right? The last great evil leader before Jesus comes back, okay? The final evil leader. In chapter 8, there's another little horn, but it's a different little horn. In chapter 8, it is a historical lesson about a guy named Antichius. And Antichius was a leader after Alexander the Great. He arose out of the, the kind of the ashes of the Greek Empire and led a war against the Jewish people. Now, what he is, is he is a foreshadowing of the future Antichrist. So the little horn in chapter 8 is different from the little horn of chapter 7. Now, this individual, and you can look him up on Wikipedia or Encyclopedia Britannica's website or whatever. He's a real uh, uh, historical figure. This prophecy is about the eighth king of the Syrian dynasty. He held power from 175 to about 164 BC, and his name means God manifested. So what we're seeing in chapter 8 of Daniel is we're seeing a prototype or we're seeing a foreshadowing of the Antichrist that we, if we live long enough, that we will eventually see in the future. And this guy that we're talking about in chapter 8, Antichius, his rise was sudden, but it was very, very powerful. And he went towards the south and the east, and he actually waged war against the people of God. And it says that he grew as high as the heavenly host. Now, that doesn't mean that he was equal to God, but what it most likely means is that he went after the Jews specifically. Not what the other empires had done. Maybe they had conquered regions, but they were, they were somewhat gracious with the Jewish people. He went, waged war against the Jews, waged war against the priests, and waged war against a group of individuals called the Maccabees, who followed a guy named Jacob Maccabeus. And they, followed after, uh, the, they went after the Maccabees, who were warriors and who were also uh, uh, kind of like priests. And it says that he got a certain amount of the stars and he trampled them. Now, if you go back to Genesis... The people of God were referred to as stars. God talked to Abraham and he said, I'll make your seed as numerous as the stars in the sky. So when it says that, it means that he went after the Jews. And historians believe that this guy killed somewhere in the neighborhood of 100,000 Jews during his short reign of time. 
Now, this is mentioned in two books, 1st and 2nd Maccabees, that are not part of the Bible. They're part of what's called the Apocrypha. Any of you who have a, a, a Catholic background or a Lutheran background know what the Apocrypha is. It's a certain amount of books that were added to certain Bibles. They're not part of the Bible. They're historical books. There's nothing wrong with them, but they're, they're not part of the Holy Bible. So this individual, Antichius, he presented himself to be God. It says that he made himself prince of hosts. In other words, he claimed to be God, and in his arrogance, because he claimed to be God, he went to the Jewish temple in Jerusalem, and he extinguished the fire in the, in the altar so they couldn't sacrifice to their God anymore. So what he did is he took it up a notch. Remember, all of this is foreshadowing the Antichrist that will come. That not only will he rebel against people, he will look at God and he will say, I'm God, not you. And that's what this individual did. So he extinguished the fire so the Jews could not properly worship the way they wanted to. Now, one would say, why would God allow this to happen to his people? Well, God's people had become rebellious, and God's people had become idolatrous, which means they worshiped false things. They worshiped their money. They worshiped other things that were not the true God. So in order to turn them back, in order to get their attention, he allowed several evil kings to come and overtake them in the hopes of turning them around. But in the process, the truth was trampled. So as Daniel has seen all this unfold, right, there's angels in this vision, and angel number one, let's call him Henry, angel number one asks angel number two, we'll call him Joe, they start to talk, and angel one says to angel two, how long is this going to last? And angel two turns around to Daniel, and he tells him this, he says, all of this is going to go on for about 2,300 evenings and mornings. Now, there's a lot of debate on what that means. There's two sacrifices a day the way the Jews did it. So they thought maybe 1,150 days, right? Sacrifice in the morning, sacrifice at night, 1,150 days. Other people believe it was literally 2,300 days. It doesn't matter. What matters is it eventually came to an end. I said Jacob. It's Judas Maccabeus. I'm sorry. Came in and conquered uh, Antichius, and the, and the Jews came back and they reclaimed Jerusalem, and all of this persecution ended. Now, here's something I say almost every single week. Do not get lost in the details. Do not get lost. If we approach Scripture with dogma, if we approach Scripture just trying to break it down into a mathematical equation, we often miss the big picture. And the big picture is this, is that God does allow the persecution of His people, but He only allows it for a certain amount of time. Now, there's a question that comes with that, and I get it. If you're in this room, you're like, why? It's a good question. Why does God allow this? I do not have a good answer for all the reasons why God allows suffering, but I do know this. Without trials, without troubles, without friction, there can be no great victories. No good movie has ever been made where there is not conflict. No great story has ever been written where there is not conflict, where there's no antagonist. And so God knew in His infinite wisdom that there would be no great appreciation for the winds if there was no friction. Also, there is an inadequate development of people's character when they have never had to fight for what they have. 
Whenever you try to get someone's advice, do you typically go to that person that's lived in the Christian bubble their entire life, never made any mistakes, never had any hiccups in life? Are those the people we typically go to for advice on life? No. And there's nothing against those people. They're not bad people. But you typically want to go to someone who's been through the fire, made it out the other side and said, hey, how do I do this? How do I make it through? So in this little part that I just read, We learned because of this guy Antichius, if we place ourselves above God, we will gravitate towards being arrogant and we will gravitate toward what's called moral relativism. What that means is when we start thinking that we make the rules on what is right and wrong, morality becomes relative. Well, it may work for you, but it doesn't work for me. Now that is completely antithetical to the Bible. The Bible is very clear on what is right and what is wrong. And the one that makes those rules is not us, but God. And we do not try to bend God to fit our culture. Our culture must bend to fit God. He's the absolute authority. Also, when theology takes a backseat to politics, the Jews let their politics define their theology. They let self-preservation determine their theology. And whenever we let politics determine our theology... Whenever Fox News or CNN determines our theology, the truth not only gets muddied, it gets lost. Whenever we let culture, whenever we let self-preservation determine our theological beliefs, the truth gets lost. And then the last thing is, without trials, there's always an inadequate development of character and community. Move on. While I, Daniel, was watching the vision... And trying to understand it, there stood before me someone who appeared to be a man. I heard a human voice calling from the middle of the Uli, Gabriel, explain the vision to this man. So he approached where I was standing, and when he came near, I was terrified and I fell face down. Son of man, he said to me, understand that the vision refers to the time of the end. While he was speaking to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground. Then he touched me, he made me stand up, and he said, I am here to tell you what will happen at the conclusion of the time of wrath, because it refers to the appointed time of the end. The two-horned ram that you saw represents the kings of Media and Persia. The shaggy goat represents the king of Greece. And the large horn between his eyes represents the first king. The four horns that took the place of the shattered horn represent four kingdoms, and they will rise from that nation, but without its power. So in this vision, there's angels standing around, and all of a sudden, Daniel sees someone that looks like a man. He's watching the vision, trying to understand it. And this man, this, this figure of a man, spoke in a human voice and told Gabriel, Gabriel's an angel in the Bible, to go and tell Daniel what's going on. Now, none of it's new information for us. We've already kind of covered it. Now, it's not a stretch to think that this man that spoke was Jesus. The reason why we think it's Jesus is, is it was a, a figure that looked like a man and he commanded angels. The only one that commands angels is God. Now, Gabriel's an interesting character. Most of you, whether you're a Christian in here or not, have heard of the angel Gabriel. We talk about Gabriel like we're best buds, right? Like there's like lots written about him. He's mentioned in the Bible three times, and this is one of them. So we've kind of made this huge thing over the angel Gabriel, and he's not even a very mentioned, uh, a very, uh, um, he's not mentioned very often in the Holy Bible. 
So Daniel reacted to seeing this angel Gabriel, much like other men in the Bible who saw angels reacted. When the angel appeared, it said that Daniel fell face down in terror. Doesn't mean the angels are scary looking, but it's more than we can comprehend. It's more than we're used to seeing. The intensity of the light or whatever angels look like, it usually scared men. It always scared men, and they fell down. I like what John says when he wrote Revelation. He says they fell down like he was dead, which means he passed out, right? So John was scared. Moses was scared. Isaiah was scared. Ezekiel was scared. Daniel was scared when they all saw angels. Now, this leads me to something, and I'm not trying to be a jerk, but whenever you hear these modern day ministers, I put in quotations, talk about how they like drink coffee with angels and hang out with angels and command angels. Whenever we hear people make claims like this, we must always go back to the scripture and see if it lines up. So whenever an arrogant minister in North America says, yeah, I got this angel that comes over to my house and we like drink coffee, right? It's cool. That doesn't really line up with the other accounts of men who had seen angels in the Bible. So maybe not listen to those guys. You guys cool on that? That's why we don't watch Benny Hinn, right? I just offended some Benny Hinn fans in here. So he says that this is the vision that refers to the end time. Now look, here's what happens in this part that I just read. There's this now connection to the book of Revelation now. Okay, we've been talking about history, right? Daniel chapter 8 is talking about things that have already happened. Now in this part that I just read, now we're starting to see, uh oh, oh, wait a second. We should take note because this relates to our future. This chapter is about events that were going to happen just a couple of centuries after Daniel. But when he says, oh, wait a second, this is talking about the times of wrath. This is talking about the times of the future. We now start to see that this is a foreshadowing of what the end times are going to look like. And when it says time of wrath, we know that's about the future because believers in God will never see God's wrath. We will not be here when God's wrath is poured out. So we know this is about a future event, and it starts to connect us to the book of Revelation. And so what we see out of this guy Antichius is we see that he is what's called a dual reference, that he means kind of two things. He was a historical figure, and he meant something for that particular time, but it's also foreshadowing something that has not happened yet. And the Bible has several of these. And so Daniel's vision and documentation of these prophecies gives us an example. It gives us a warning. It gives us a glimpse of what we should look out for. It is extremely foolish to not know history because, as you guys know, those that don't know history are doomed to repeat history. So we will see it again. So the interpretation is clear. Gabriel clears up any confusion. Not just that Daniel has, but we as readers, any confusion we may have. He says, here's what the goat is, here's what the ram is, here's what the horns are. Here's all these different things. He lays it all out. He even talks about how Antichius will come to power after these, the big horn breaks apart, four will rise up and he'll come up from them. And then he says that it will come from the first king. Now again, I don't think the Bible's ever wrong. So when it says that the first king of Greece, the first king of Greece was not Alexander, but it wasn't talking about chronologically the first king. It was talking about the greatest king of Greece, and the greatest king of Greece was Alexander the Great. So again, the Bible is never incorrect. Last part, and I hope I can connect the dots really well here. Near the end of their kingdoms, when the rebels have reached their full measure of their sin, an insolent king, skilled in intrigue, will come to the throne. 
His power will be great, but it will not be his own. He will cause terrible destruction and succeed in whatever he does. He will destroy the powerful along with the holy one or the holy people. He will cause deceit to prosper through his cunning and his influence, and in his own mind he will make himself great. He will destroy many in a time of peace. He will even stand against the prince of princes, that is Jesus. Yet, he will be shattered not by human hands. Remember that. The vision of the evenings and the mornings that has been told is true. Now you must seal up the vision because it refers to many days in the future. I, Daniel, who uh, was overcome and lay sick for days, then I got up and went about the king's business. I was greatly disturbed by the vision, and I could not understand it. I'm going to explain to you what he means by that. Now look, here's something interesting. When it says that Antiochus was destroyed but not by human hands, this is something different. Now everything I just read was a recap of what we already know. This angel Gabriel was just kind of giving us a quick recap, right? So we know all this. But what is different is in verse 25, it says that this evil leader will be crushed or killed, but not by another human, not by another empire, but something supernatural. Now, going outside of the Bible, don't think I'm a heretic or anything, but if you go into the book of 1 Maccabees, which is a book of history, which is all validated by historical events, it was a book written about history during this time. It talks a lot about the time of Daniel. Now, in the book of 1 Maccabees, it says this, I remember the wrongs I did in Jerusalem when I took all the silver and gold objects from the temple and tried without any good reason to destroy the inhabitants of Judea. That's the Jews. I know this is why all these terrible things have happened to me, and I am about to die in deep despair here in this foreign land. Let me show you what this means. Chapter 8 of Daniel was written about 400 years before the book of Maccabees. Now, 400 years after Daniel wrote chapter 8, exactly what he said that this leader will die by not by human hands. It happened exactly like Daniel said. And it was recorded not just by the Maccabees. If you look it up on Encyclopedia Britannica and you look at how Antichius died, he died in a very weird supernatural way. He went into his house. He was struck by grief. He pulled in his closest friends and he said, because I persecuted the Jews, I'm going to die in a foreign land. Now, again, for any of you who struggle with belief or struggle about the validity of the Bible, Daniel is either a really good guesser or he's a prophet. He's either a really good guesser or he's a prophet. And these aren't just, these aren't just like very vague guesses, right? I see one day that you're going to have a lot of money, right? It wasn't one of those. It was extremely specific. Did that blow anyone else's mind besides me? Nope. Okay. All right. So, eventually this angel looks at Daniel and says, seal this up. Don't seal it up so people won't look at it. Make sure it's protected so people can look at it. Make sure that it's guarded, that it's not destroyed so people can look at it for generations and generations and generations. And so after Daniel sees this vision, he gets sick. He gets sick to his stomach. Imagine God showing you the fall of your civilization and then the two civilizations after yours, imagine that. It, it struck him so hard 
that he couldn't understand it, not that he couldn't understand what had happened. Here's what he couldn't understand. He couldn't understand that the comfortable times he lived in would ever change. Now it's about to get real, guys. This huge history lesson that we just talked about for the past 50 minutes, now it's about the rubber's about to meet the road, okay? When Daniel had this vision from God, he was the third most powerful person in the most powerful empire in the world. Everyone had plenty of money. Everyone had plenty to eat. Everyone had comfort. Everyone had huge places to worship, and they could worship however they chose. Everything was good. And what was hard for Daniel to understand is that all of this could fall apart. And not just that, the people that conquered us are going to be conquered by someone else. So in our day and age, I'm just going to use an example. This is not going to happen. At least we don't think so. The Russians come over and take over the United States. And then the Chinese come up and just take them. And we sit in the comfort right now thinking that the United States could never fall. Our way of life could never change, though we're one of the youngest nations on planet Earth. That these things could never change. Our freedoms could never go away. Our temples could never be extinguished. And we sit in comfort thinking, how could this happen? And here's what chapter 8 of Daniel shows us. It has happened before. It has happened before. And guess what? It will happen again. It will happen again. And so God in His grace and in His wisdom says, Christians, know that the comfort we live in right now is not always going to be there. And so our future, well, Corey, that's talking about Babylon. Okay, flip to Revelation. Let me show you how those empires end up. Flip to the end, and we see that our future is laid out and has been foreshadowed in the Old Testament. Now, if one believes the Bible to be true, if you're in here and you're a believer and you believe the Bible to be true, not just the spiritual side of the Bible, but hopefully I've given you a little snippet of how historically sound the Bible is. And if it's historically sound, and if it's spiritually sound, we would be fools to ignore the warnings of Daniel. Every week when I get up here and pull my hair out and scream and say, do not put all your hope in the United States or in all your hope in an earthly government. Don't do that. Whenever I say that, it's not because I'm a communist. It's not because I hate the government. It's because one day it will fall. And if your hope is in an earthly government and it topples, what will you do? That's why our hope must be in something greater than any earthly institution. And God in his wisdom says, look, 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 look. It has happened. It will happen again. Now, here's our problem. Our problem is that you and I aren't stupid. It's that our vision is so myopic. I have a sister-in-law that is an optometrist, so I use fancy words about vision. Myopic just means that you can only see things right in front of your face. Our problem is, is that we... I'm talking about Christians. Let's pick on us for a second. We have become so myopic, so shallow, so nearsighted in our vision that we fail to see the relevance of history. Do you know many Christians won't even read the Old Testament? Ah, it's not relevant. Really? Why do you think Jesus came? 
If you don't know the events of the Old Testament, you don't even know why Jesus showed up. You don't even understand why we have a New Testament if you don't understand the Old Testament. And as we've been reading Daniel for the last three months or whatever, have you not seen how relevant this book is? Have you not seen it? Have you not seen that history repeats itself? So we would be foolish to not acknowledge the believers that came before us. We would be foolish to not dig back into our past, not just the Old Testament, but to dig back into the past of the church and to understand the Reformation and to understand how we ended up where we are right now. We'd be fools not to understand the relevance of the past. And if we don't understand history, we fail to see the magnitude of right now because right now becomes history. How you treat your children now will affect you in 10 years. How you treat your spouse, how you treat the people in your life, how you treat your neighbor, how you work. Look, the Bible says it this way. Whatever seeds you plant will either grow up corruption or they will grow up righteousness. What we do now affects eternity. All the choices we make right now, everything we do, So we fail to see the relevance of the past. We fail to see the magnitude of our decisions that we make right now. And in turn, we fail to see the vastness of eternity. Christians, this is not your final resting place. Peter said it and Paul said it, that we are migrating through. We are journeying through this. Jesus said our life is like a vapor. It comes out and it dissipates and it's gone. It is short. Even if you live 120 years, it is short compared to the vastness of eternity. So the question I want to leave you with is this. If we know things are going to change, how will we react when we cannot come to a building? How will we react when they shut the doors? How will we react when it's not just social persecution on Facebook? How will you react when it's a physical persecution? Are we a people? Are we a church? Are we so insulated with the Holy Spirit of God that when the pressure is put on us, we will respond correctly? On the way to church today, you guys might have heard him. There's this preacher in Nashville, um, and I don't agree with him on a lot of stuff, but he said something pretty interesting today. Someone asked him why God puts pressure on his people or why he allows pressure to be put on his people. And he used the analogy of Febreze. He said, when pressure is put on a bottle of Febreze, this wonderful scent comes out of it. And he says, God's people, if filled with the Holy Spirit, when pressure is put on them, the fruit of the Spirit should pour out of them. How will we respond when the comforts that we've taken for granted and we've become so entitled, how will we respond as the people of God when times change? How will you respond when you can't depend on me to deliver the word, but you're going to have to deliver it to your neighbors? You're going to have to deliver it to your family. You're going to have to deliver it to the people on your block. How will we respond? My prayer for you is this, as we get into a new year. Go back and learn how we got to the present day. There's a great podcast as we start this 40-day fast. There's a great podcast called The History of the Christian Church by a guy named Lance Ralston. You should look that up. History of the Christian Church. It's free. Lance Ralston. They're in 15 and 20-minute blocks. So if you live on the north side of town and you're driving to the south side of town, you can listen to like three, right? 
That's a, that's a traffic joke. And so in this, he goes from right after Jesus dies all the way to the reformation of the church. They're quick, they're short, they're really, really awesome. There's a lot of information and you can learn a lot about the history of the Christian church. Understand where we came from. Also, my prayer for you is that every single move you make right now, that you put thought into it. Know that every word you say, every action you take, how you treat the people around you, that there is a huge impact that that makes on your future. Not just on earth, but your future. And know that this is not our final destination. This is not it. We are investing in the present for a future with Jesus Christ. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. So my prayer for you as we get into the new year is that we need to make sure that we are so insulated with the Holy Spirit of God that we're investing in the future. I was listening the other day to NPR, and they did a poll. You guys are going to think I'm a communist, right? Talk about the United States government. I listen to NPR all day. Um, <laughs> listen to NPR the other day, and they did a study, and they said 90% of all people polled said that 2015 was a worse year than 2014. So you, brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, it is our job to go out and be the light to a people that are overrun with despair. What will we do this year? How will we respond? How will we react? Okay? I'm going to pray for you. There's communion on the right and left. You're welcome to help yourself. Everyone's welcome to take that as long as they've asked God to forgive them of their sins. There'll be some people up here to my left if you need prayer for anything. Um, and that's pretty much it. Hey, I love you guys. I hope you had a good Christmas. And if I don't see you um, until next week, have a have a happy new year. Love you guys a lot. We need to make 2016 awesome, right? So, okay. Love you guys. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, we love you. We thank you, God, and we praise you. Thank you for your word, Lord, that gives us so much depth, and it's so intriguing. God, as we take communion today, Lord, for everyone in this room who might have had a bad 2015, I pray, Lord Jesus, God, that your Holy Spirit speak to them and as people repent and ask for forgiveness and take communion, God, I pray, Lord, that this year, God, we can make it the greatest year. Not because of money or because of, you know, our sports team winning some kind of thing. Not any of that junk, God. I just pray that this year is so good because your Holy Spirit is in us. And regardless of the circumstances, we can advance your kingdom, Lord. We love you. We praise you. We thank you, God, in Jesus' name. Amen. You guys are welcome to help yourself. Thank you for sitting with me through that.